Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. Today is Wednesday, September the 9th, 2015, and we are starting uh, yet another episode of our ongoing uh, series with uh, Mr. Bob Schaefer. Uh, just a little announcement. Uh, next Wednesday night is the, I don't know, the Presidential Beauty Contest that's going to be on the debates to see who's the most beautiful you know, see who deserves a presidential president the most based on their looks and not necessarily on what they say. So that's going to be going on next Wednesday night. As you can tell, I'm a little cynical about the whole process. But So we're not going to have our call with Bob next Wednesday night. But we will have it tonight. So, uh, Bob, you there? I'm here. Oh, yay. Okay, okay. well... Uh, folks, real quick, a little housekeeping. Uh, hit star six on your phone to mute out, if you would, please. If you're on a speakerphone, especially. Okay. All right. That took care of that. Okay, Bob, so I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to you. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Bob Schaefer. Thank you very much, and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Um, We're going to talk tonight about land patents, and we're going to talk about how they um, were originally formed by the Founding Fathers. Um, First, let me uh, talk about the Founding Fathers a little bit. There's there's some, uh, some bad press out there about Founding Fathers. You know, they have... They had the uh, Federalists who wrote the Federalist Papers, and then they had the Anti-Federalists who wrote the Anti-Federalist Papers. And, of course, the Anti-Federalists lost, and there became a bunch of sore losers, and they still have their following. So when they have, when they talked about the founding fathers, they'll refer them to as a bunch of rich, white Slave owners, that's that's a real put-down for the founding fathers. Well, there were probably some that were rich. They were probably all white, and they might have been some of them slave owners, but not all of them. At any rate, uh, let's just say that they were all of the above and that they created a government for themselves, a bunch of rich people wanting to create a government to serve them. Well, that's a good thing for us today because uh, what they created has been, was the best constitution uh, in the history of the world and it lasted the longest and it was, uh, it was good for them. Now, over the years, uh, there's a lot of people try to change it. And, uh, of course, it's been amended 27 times, which shows it was a, 
and is a living document that some people would rather not go through the amendment process and so they get judges to commit what they call judicial activism and they can bend and twist and spin uh, their, their belief and then uh, we're all bound by it. Now, just last week we had an email from somebody that that was talking about why do we want to work in their system? Um, and they point out that we don't even have courts anymore. We have corporate. And uh, did Bob Schaefer know that? Yes, I know that. I've known that for five years, more than five years. Uh, it happened back in, with the Act of 1871. Um, see, the government always uh, goes real slow. They, they don't. It, it takes them a while to catch up. And what happened uh, in 1871 was kind of what they needed to do a whole lot earlier because in 1861, when uh, the representatives of seven southern states got up and walked out of Congress, they killed Congress. They no longer had a quorum. And they didn't need a quorum to adjourn, but they needed a quorum to reconvene, and so they didn't have that. And that's why Abraham Lincoln himself um, declared war on the South with what's known today as the first executive order. Before that, there were no executive orders. And they called it something else at the time, but that's what it basically was. And it took him 10 years after his death to come up with something that might work. And so they committed... They, they uh, created the Act of 1871, which created a, a legal entity known as the United States Incorporated. And uh, so the congressmen are all board members of that corporation. And then they started creating an overlapping jurisdiction all over America uh, with uh, new counties, like, for instance, um, I live and work in San Bernardino County in California. That, uh, see, that's the original de jure, constitutionally valid uh, constitution, which was a, a common law republic. But in, eight, in 1912, they came up with a charter for an overlapping county of San Bernardino, of means from. In other words, it already existed, but this is a new overlapping county of San Bernardino. So, for instance, we still have the original San Bernardino County Sheriff and the San Bernardino County Court, but the sheriff, we have, we have the, the County of San Bernardino Sheriff Department, which is, is, goes along with the overlapping uh, jurisdiction. All states have two constitutions. That the second one, or you know, the second one came about after the Act of 1871. So in California, we have the uh, seven, uh, the 1879 California Constitution, which happened 30 years after the 1849 Constitution. Yeah. The 1849, and all the all your states have the same kind of a scenario, but I'm going to explain the one that, that's right up my hand here. The 1849 Constitution made provision for its 
amendment in Article 10, Section 1, and for its complete repeal in Section 2. The people loved that Constitution so much, and I would say the sovereign inhabitants or the sovereign people of the state of California loved it so much, they only amended it three times in 30 years. One of those amendments made Section 2 of Article 10 harder to repeal, and it's never been repealed. Now, there's case law that says when the 1879 came in, it avoided the 1849. Well, that court was a Supreme Court decision. The Supreme Court does not have the power and authority to amend any constitution. And the 1879 Constitution refers to the 1849 Constitution for its boundaries. So it, it can't get away with it. So anyway, we have that to deal with. Then it, by, they started adding all these overlapping counties, which, which is a federal corporate quasi-county. Quasi means as if it were, but isn't. And by the way, pronunciation is very important. It's not quasi or, or uh, quasi, it's quasi. I learned that from a lot of seminars listening to law professors. So anyway, it's a quasi um, county overlapping the original county. If you, if you look at the local sheriff, his, his shoulder pass will give the underlying original, San Bernardino County. So anyway, then by 1940, we have the 1940 Buck Act, which helped to enhance all this. And in that, they talked about in this state. And all, all of a sudden now, they start spelling state with a capital letter in this state. In this state, And they're talking about the overlapping state. Then in the 50s, we got rid of the post office and came up with the postal service and they came out with a zip code. And we were told it was to zip the mail around. And they didn't tell us the zips stood for zone. It's a federal corporate zone improvement program code. That's what zip stands for, is zone improvement program. And so now then, uh, if you have a zip code, you are claiming to live in the federal corporate um, jurisdiction. So in my mail, I put I put in Cara or C slash O before my address, and other people will put brackets around the zip code, which means it's not really there, but you can see it. Other people say near, and then they'll put that zip code in. But you can even go to the domestic mail manual or the DMM and point out that you don't even have to have a zip code. You, and I have a lot of mail that I show I can have in my little archives where I get mail without a zip code at all. Um, but I have people put the domestic mail manual number there, and that's been changed recently. Anyway, back to the founding fathers. They created a wonderful country with with their plan. The Constitution is nothing but a plan. Um, you can't hold up a piece of paper and say this is the United States of America. This is the plan to build the United States of America. And it was drafted. 
you know, I used to be a draftsman, and I'm a general contractor, and I've got a lot of plans. So I know the difference between a plan and the building. So the, the, the legal entity that, that we have, like the states and the federal government, are all in our head. There is no, nothing that we can say, this is it. Um, and like in construction, if, if the owner wants a, a change from the plan, they do a change order. And it has to be signed by everybody, and then it becomes legal and binding. The federal government had a change order, which is called the amendment process. So we could make all those changes. But there are people today that are not patient enough to do the amendment process like, a, like a, the plan calls for. And so they just do their thing. Uh, but what the founding fathers did, they, there was a roughly two and a half million uh, subjects of the King of England living in America. I believe that was probably counting the males over 21 years of age. So we could probably say there was double that uh, of, of actual people. On July 4, 1776, they all became sovereigns. Sovereigns with no subjects, with nobody to control but themselves. I'm quoting a case law from the United States Supreme Court. The people were sovereign. Today's federal corporate governments and courts or quasi-courts don't, don't like the word sovereign. They don't want anybody thinking they are sovereign because the government that they work for is sovereign. Now, 239 years ago, the term public servant meant the people who worked for the government that were under those laws. The sovereign people were above. They don't want to hear that either. But that's where they were. The sovereign people are like the kings. There's a case law that says we're kings. We have the, we have the prerogative of the king. And... Uh, so today, you're, you're, you're really not a king anymore. You're subject to, and they tried to do that with contracts, and I'll explain that in a minute. The land the people lived on became their own sovereign land. So we had sovereign people living on their own sovereign land. And then and they used land patents. Now, land patents came from England, and so the American government... Um, started embellishing them and made them uh, American land patents. Now, the first original 13 colony states, um, they were, they made, they, there was 11 years from 1776 to 1787 when they came out with the federal constitution. So all the states were states. All the colonies were states by then. But little Rhode Island, the littlest one of them all, would not join the, uh, the Compact of Union States until, and this was their condition, you come up with a Bill of Rights. Now, I understand there was about 39 original Bill of Rights, and they whittled that down by sometimes doubling up and combining them down to 13 that went before the people. Only 10 of them were actually finalized. 
and that was in 1891, two years after they were submitted. It takes time to get all this stuff down. Now, the beauty of history, you know, I hated history in high school, and, <laughs> and grade, grade school, high school, and college. I thought to myself, who cares? It all happened years ago. Let's get on with life. <laughs> now I'm finding, and my identical twin brother is also a historian for a big university. So we, we both hated <laughs> history, but now this is our, our field. And we pull from history to show um, where we're going because we can look at the past and see the future. Now, the, the courts today are bound by the intent of the original lawmakers. And they don't like that, but that's what they're, they're, they're supposed to do. And they have taken an oath of office to do that. And they don't want to hear about that either. In fact, they have taken the wrong oath of office, at least in California they have. So that means they have no standing. So when I help people... Are you there? Yes, go ahead, Bob. Okay, I, I had some beating going on here. They, uh, when I help people sue government and, and judges and, and all that, they cry immunity. They like to say, well, the judge here is has absolute judicial immunity, and the officer of the court that enforces that judgment has quasi, or as if it were but isn't, judicial immunity. Then there's police officers' immunity. There's qualified immunity for, for code enforcement. There's good faith immunity. In other words, they're all immune. They're trained. No, they can't sue you. You're immune. And they're somewhat right in only one incident, and that's when they have jurisdiction. When they have jurisdiction, they have all those immunities. But guess what? We can point out they don't have any jurisdiction, and I have come up with five adjectives to describe their lack, and that is they're in the clear, total, complete absence of all jurisdiction, and that makes them liable. Now, you have to prove it. Well, we can prove that because they didn't take the proper oath of office in one area, and there was a second area. It was not just one area. The other one is that the land patent made that land sovereign maybe 110, 200 years ago. I just saw a land patent this last week that was from the 1830s for an Indian nation, and it covered a huge amount of land. It's the only land patent that I've ever seen, and I collect them, that did not say to the grantee his heirs or assigns forever. It did say forever, but it said that the land patent would go back if the Indians ever abandoned it. And in this particular area, they did abandon their land. I think they did it for a price, but that land patent died. Now, with, with, when I help people with mortgages, a lot of people think the land patent kills their mortgage. No, it does not. But I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. I'll tell you the bad news first, and then I'll tell you the good news last. When, when you took title to your land, 
You took the sovereign allodial land ownership rights, title, interest, estate, use, and control, everything that the federal government had 100, 200 years ago. It, there was no higher authority. Nobody could tax their land and tell them how to use their land. Now, then, every time it, was, it changed hands, the new owner became an assigned. Now, if he financed it, he signed a mortgage or a deed of trust. A lot of people don't realize it, but you put that land up as security for your loan. But it's only temporary because of the greed of the, of the financial institutions. So, so for the first day or two, you're not an assigned anymore. You're assigned it to the mortgage company. And that deed of trust is security for the loan. They can sell your house and pay them back. Even though they created the money that they loaned you from your signature, in other words, you financed your own loan, they don't care about that, but we use that against them too. So anyway, then they sold the loan, or they sold the promissory note, and they might have sold it four or five times. And during, at some point, they they put it, they securitized it, or they separated it, or they bifurcated it from that original mortgage or deed of trust. Some states are deed of trust states, and some of them are mortgage states. When they separated it, which could have been two days later, they killed that deed of trust to be security for that loan. And the sovereign, allodial land ownership, rights, title, interest, estate, use, and control reverted back to you. So now you have the highest form of ownership there is because they killed it. Just like those Indians, when they sold their land, they killed the, the value of the, uh, of the land patent on that particular one. So that's the good news. You got rid of your, your position of an assignee for a very short period of time, and by operation of law, when they separated the two, they took your promissory note and they put it on the stock exchange forever. They can never recapture it. Then under FAS 140 of the law, they had to destroy it. And now if I borrowed 10 bucks from you and I, and I came back with the 10 bucks from the interest, wouldn't I want to get my original IOU back? Well, of course I would, because I could come up later. And that's what we demand. We demand the original. And they don't have it. All they have is a copy. And that's not good enough, because it could still come back. And then there are people that have been evicted from their house that was free and clear because a promissory note showed back up. And so that's why it's important that uh, we get it back. So because they securitized it and separated it and invested it in the stock exchange, and it's being traded all over the world in bundles, and, and here's another problem with the courts. The judges, their retirement is invested in what's known as mortgage-backed securities. Mm -hmm. So now when you go before a judge, he's going to want to tell you, you better make your payments. You bought all this money, you stop making your payments. And that's why we have to, it's an educational thing. We have to show the judge that the mortgage doesn't exist anymore and that his, 
his retirement is, is invested in, in a bad investment. Now, we're going to go back to land patent here. On, uh, I just created a document for somebody uh, that is, uh, you know, I think it's pretty awesome, and, you know, I'm, I'm judging my own work from 37 <laughs> years. But first let's talk about the uh, court procedures. When you get sued, they, you, you have to have a, a, com, a complaint and a summons. Well, a summons is common to everything else. So if the county or a neighbor or the state is suing you, they, it's usually with a complaint. Now, the attorney general might use an information. It's still a document that gives the court jurisdiction. Now, that's saying that the judge has the right of office and he's gone through all the hoops and he's really a judge. He still has no jurisdiction until proper papers are brought before him. So when a judge is sitting before 30 or 4 people, he may have jurisdiction on 3 or 4 because all the others, uh, the, the, the paperwork is wrong. And, you know, I'm a nitpicker on paperwork, and I can pick it apart and say, well, that didn't give that court any jurisdiction. That wasn't written pursuant to the rules of court, for one thing. The court clerk shouldn't even have accepted this document for filing. But he, he might have jurisdiction, but he doesn't have jurisdiction on a land patent because when that land patent was issued, it may or may not have reserved any rights. Now, the first reservation of rights mentioned on a land patent was for ditches and canals, which was basically for flood control. So the surveyor general that was in a state, and all the land was owned by the federal government. A lot of people think as soon as the state became a state, it owned the land. No, it did not. For instance, in California, it was California was formed in 1849 and joined the Union on September 9, 1850. It still owned no dry land. In 1864, 14 years later, the federal government gave California the Yosemite Grant to make it into its first state park. Right there is evidence that the state didn't own the land. It already belonged to the federal government, and they granted the Yosemite Grant. I have a big, thick book on the Yosemite Grant that I bought when I was in Yosemite. It's very interesting. It has a lot of old photographs. But 44 years later, the federal government said, yeah, you guys are doing such a poor job of managing the Yosemite Grant. We're going to take it back. And they made it into a national park. And that's the story of Yosemite as far as ownership of land goes. So... The, the uh, land patents reserved some rights. A lot of the old original ones, by the way, they were handwritten in such beautiful script that you can sometimes hardly even read it, but it's so fancy. They used quills that would spread, and the, the ink would get wider on certain on curves and stuff. It was really beautiful. Later on, when they had typewriters, they typed them in. And then they started using uh, printing presses, and then they used blanks. They could fill in the blanks. It's interesting to see the evolution of printing and, and lamp patterns just in the form, in their format. Now, 
all except for this very old Indian land grant, they all someplace say to the grantee his heirs or assigns forever. Forever is a long time. I've asked more than one government agency, what is it about the word forever that you don't understand? Yeah, it's old, but it uses the word forever. Even the Indian one that I just talked about has the word forever on it, but not to anybody else. Now, the people on the Internet and radio that talk about uh, land patents that uh, are giving out a lot of bad information, they say, well, if, if you still have a land patent in the name of your corporation, or your land, excuse me, your land ownership in the name of a corporation, a business corporation, or a foundation, or an association, or a partnership, you've got to put it back in the name of the man because they didn't issue land patents to corporations. Wrong. One of my pieces of land is in a railroad grant, which was a corporation. And that one doesn't have any errors. Corporations don't have errors. So that land patent is to the, the grantee, its successors, or assigns. I'm an assign. Everybody that buys it is an assign forever. So now, later on, they started reserving rights to for water and oil and coal. The newer ones are, are that way. The state issues its own land patents for school grants that the federal government gave them first. I have a land patent issued by Governor Gray Davis about 15 years ago, I think it was. Wow. And they reserved all kinds of stuff to themselves. But now you see, the federal government could not reserve any rights to anybody but itself. And it didn't. I've never seen a land patent that reserved any rights whatsoever to any state. Well, what is a state? It's a legislative, executive, and judicial. So if there was no reservation of rights reserved to the judicial, now we can sue that judge that's usurping to pretend jurisdiction over anything to do with that land and its mortgage because he has no, it's not on the land patent. So that's why I tell people, you need to get a copy of your land patent. Now, they say, well, I don't know if my land is protected by a land patent. And this is my statement. You can quote me. All private land is forever protected by a, either a United States land patent or a state-issued land patent. And I would just pull in numbers from my experience, I would say it was 98% of United States land patents and the rest are state land patents, with the exception of the 13 original colony states and Texas. Now, there's, there's places in Texas, uh, pursuant to the gaps and purchase, that have United States land patents in those areas. But the regular part of Texas, they issued their own land patents, and they have their own land patent department. And they issued, the, and they, re, they released all right title and interest that they held to the grantee forever. So now here we have the sovereign people on their sovereign land. Today's crazy federal corporate governments don't want you thinking that you're a sovereign and living on your sovereign land because then they lost complete, total control. And they have. But they're going to try to make you believe differently. 
In fact, there's an FBI uh, document out on the sovereign citizen movement and sovereign citizen ideology. And there are some uh, uninformed people that think they are sovereign citizens. It's impossible to be a sovereign and a citizen. A citizen is under the control of a constitution and all the laws made pursuant thereto. The sovereign was above that. Go back to July 5, 1776. There were no citizens of anything because they hadn't formed any states, cities, counties, or federal government at that time. And when they, the federal government did not want California to become a territory, it was just a possession right after the International Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and its Protocol of 32. So they sent General, United States Army General Kearney to California to talk to the sovereign inhabitants. They were not citizens. And they had so much sovereignty that they could create a plan to build the 1849 government. And they, the, what they, did, they delegated what was known as a clipped sovereignty. They took some of their sovereignty, clipped it, and created a government. But the government was never higher than them. There's no maxim of law that says a fountain cannot rise higher than its source. So you have a t water tank on the hill and down in the valley you have a fountain. It can never shoot up higher than the tank because of the barometric pressure of the surface of the water. I use that when, you know, I've been a contractor for many years and re-leveled a lot of mobile homes. I can't put a lake into a mobile home and get that mobile home perfectly level by being putting the, to the surface of the water, but I can sure do it with, with water in a hose. And uh, I have a 100-foot water level, and I can make that mobile home perfectly level because you don't have one side of the lake higher than the other side. The uh, pyramid builders use water levels, but not on a plastic hose. They dug a trench. It could be hundreds of feet on one side and then hundreds of feet on all four sides fill it full of water, and it's level. That water goes perfect to level. So a fountain cannot get higher than its source, and in government, the source of all power and authority and jurisdiction came from those original sovereign people, the two and a half million, which is now over 300 million. And by the way, they had... Uh, we have public servants in those days, and we have public servants now, but you, you tell somebody today, well, you're a public servant, they think that's a foot down, and, they, and they'll say, well, I think you might have that wrong. And they do. You do have it wrong when you try to make them into the same kind of a public servant that they had 200 years ago. The public servant of 200 years ago was a servant of the public people, the public sovereign people. Today... A public servant is a servant of the public entity, the federal corporate quasi-government entity. So when you see I'm a favor of a police officer to protect and serve, it's not to protect and serve you. It's to protect yeah. and serve the public entity. Now then, back to Lampans. There's... We've got to get some, some basic uh, housekeeping done here before we get to, to my document. Okay. When, when you 
when you have a court case, you get to know what the opposition knows. It's called discovery. There's four different kinds of discovery. Uh, deposition is where they call you in to a conference room. You've got their attorney, your attorney, or a transcriber, and they ask questions. You, you go under oath. Those are very expensive. I don't, I don't use those for that reason because I try to, to get done for inexpensive as possible. Then there is um, request for admissions. Now, I like request for admissions because if they ignore it within a certain amount of time, then everything you ask them to admit to is deemed admitted. So we force them. And back, back to that original statement where the guy said, why are we working in the system? Because when in Rome, you deal with the Romans deal. In other words, we're stuck with it. You can end up finding yourself behind bars, and you better know the system and better know how to use it against them and not be preaching, uh, well, hey, this is a, a corporation that doesn't work. They are the ones that have the guns and the badges and the black robes, and they can do whatever they want to because of all the power they have. So what I try to teach people is how to use what they have against them. So you have with, with uh, Discovery, you have requests for admissions. Then you have another one, requests for documents, papers, and things. So, for instance, if, you, if you're suing an attorney because you say you don't have a uh, a proper oath of office, you want him to present his oath of office. Then you want him to produce his license issued by the state. The states don't issue licenses. The Fire Association gives them a bar card. They have a, a union membership. But that's what everybody thinks of as a license. Now, I have a lot of case law that says I can help people without having that in fact I'm gonna read I'm gonna read something to you here. It says members of groups who are competent non lawyers can assist other members of the group achieve the goals of the group in court without being charged with unauthorized practice of law. And you can find that if the NAACP versus Button and that can be found at the United States Supreme Court decision. I won't quote the site right now. Then there's United Mine Workers of America versus Gibbs. The United States Supreme Court said that. And here's an old one that I've known for many years. The Brotherhood of Raleigh Seaman versus Virginia uh, versus Virginia X Real, Virginia State Bar Association, United States Supreme Court case. Then there's Gideon versus Rainwright, another United States Supreme Court. Augustana versus Hamlin, the sheriff. Another U.S. Supreme Court case. It says litigants may be assisted by unlicensed laymen during judicial proceedings. And there's, there's Turner versus American Bar Association. That's just a federal case, not necessarily the United States Supreme Court. In appropriate circumstances, a federal judge may, of course, allow a defendant to proceed with a lay assistant or to orally assess his license counsel in the presentation of his case, as was done by the undersigned in United States versus GAR, that's spelled G-A-R-R. And you see the Sixth Amendment, when you read, a, when you read the, the Constitution, you have to analyze each word. Um, 
The Sixth Amendment says that we have the right to defend ourselves with the assistance of counsel. It doesn't mention lawyers or attorneys anywhere. And the old, old, old case law that we find in history, there were some people that were being punished by the United States Supreme Court, and they were removed from the list of lawyers and put on the list of counsel, you know, the, the lesser rank. So when they use the word, we have the right to the assistance of counsel, they're saying you have the right to, to the assistance of non-licensed counsel. And that's something that we can use against them. Uh, one of the ways I have gone, and I don't do, do this anymore, I'm getting too, too busy, but uh, years ago I would create a trust. And I became the trustee, and the judge would say, well, who are you? I'm the trustee. Okay. But then a few years ago, they came out with law that said, you have to be a lawyer to represent a trust. And so uh, the answer to that is, and I have 28 pages that say that's for a statutory trust. This is a non-statutory common law trust. But they still, they could still roll right over you and go off. So there's another way. I don't get, let anything stop me. Here's, here's two ways. You get, you get your, the one you're trying to help to give you an estate for years or a life estate. I never ask anybody for a life estate. That means I can live in their house for the rest of my life. With an estate for years, they can tell you to leave in a year or two. In other words, they're not stuck with you. Nobody gets stuck with anybody. But now then you have an interest in their land. Now this code enforcement guy is messing with me. I have an estate for years here, and that's how I helped my, my nephew, and that's on, that's on Tad's uh, website where we're talking about uh, how we beat a homeowners association. Uh, that was a good story. With an estate for years. What's that? That was a good story. Yeah, and there's about 30 of us. You know, when I did my land housing kit, uh, the gentleman that uh, wanted me to put that together, they said, do you have anybody that can sing your praises? Um, do you have some, you know, as well, let's, let's drive around. When they, when they got to 30, <laughs> they said, that's enough. I had another 30. But they said, well, this is plenty enough. We've got plenty here. Now, I understand... <laughs> There was somebody that made a complaint to Tad about Schaefer just bragging about his past and stuff. I've got to address that because it doesn't bother me at all. You know, being in business, I had a retail store for many years and a contracting business. I still have that. I just sold two major re-roofing jobs in Palm Springs that I'll be doing next week. But the old saying says there's nothing sells like success. Uh, Donald Trump is pushing that right now very well. I mean, he's getting a lot of flack over that, too. But, and I'm not comparing myself with Donald Trump. But I learned from other people's failures and successes. And so when I teach, I talk about my failures and my successes. Now, I'm going to tell you about a failure that had to be turned into a success. Part of my learning experience, and as people here, you're going to benefit from this because I'm sure a lot of you people have living trusts because some attorney told you this was the way to go to protect your assets. Well, I did common law trusts. I do common law trusts 
institutes, ministries, and foundations. And I do hundreds of foundations because they're the best. But I, I stopped doing trust when this thing happened. Um, I did a trust for a good friend of mine. He restores antiques and classic vehicles like I do. And a couple of years went by, and he and his wife decided to sell their five acres and get a really nice home over in a subdivision. Well, it showed up that there was a big judgment against me, and I was their trustee on this trust. I didn't know anything about this judgment. It was from San Diego, about three, three and a half hours from where I am. I didn't know any party. So I looked into it, and I found out that I looked at the service of process, and somebody had, had come out to my home and served one of the homeless people that lived at my house, but not as, not as a substitution of service because he didn't fit the uh, a competent member of the household. He just lived in a trailer outside. He was tall. with a lot of dark hair. He described this other guy. Now, I'm not a shorter. I, I, I don't have dark hair. And he wasn't describing me, but according to the, you know, what the judge had before him, uh, Schaefer was served. And Schaefer didn't show up. So they got a default judgment against me for thousands of dollars. And I knew nothing about it. So that's, again, two process called notice and opportunity to be heard. So I went to San Diego. I went before the judge, and he was a jerk. Too late. Should have been here before now. So we have to go to plan B. And what I learned was that a lot of people don't know is that when you put your, your assets in a trust, the trustee is the owner of your stuff. Really? The trust is not the owner. The trustee is the owner. And if he gets a judgment against him like I did, they can sell your stuff to satisfy his judgment. So get away from them. Another problem with, with uh, living trusts, they are revocable. So you don't want a revocable trust or revocable anything because, for instance, you might have all your assets in a trust and you get a big judgment against you, and there's all kinds of ways to do that illegally, uh, I should say unlawfully, but it's legal, and there's a difference. So now you really owe the money if you, if you didn't take care of business just right. So then the judge says, uh, who owns your house? Well, that's the ABC trust. Is that an irrevocable trust? Yes. It's a living trust. I order you to revoke that trust. We need to attack that house and sell it for this judgment. If it's an irrevocable trust, I'm sorry, sir, I can't revoke it. I, you, know, you can if you want to, but you don't. They, nobody can order you to revoke it. So you've got to... You've got to know what you're doing in the courtroom or you're going to get taken advantage of. And one of the things I like to tell people is, you know, you never know when you're going to find yourself in court. And so you better do your homework now while you can, especially if they come after you criminally. I know a guy that's sitting in jail right now. They shouldn't be there. They're just messing with him. And nothing I did putting the... Um, it was something else completely different. So I'm helping somebody do a rid of habeas corpus right now to try to get him out. But how you set him up, excuse me, remember uh, O.J. and all these guys, 
the attorney, the first thing an attorney does is they wait time because see, they have to take you to trial within so many days. Whether anybody's prepared or not. Well, if the attorney says, why is not prepared, Your Honor, I need to get prepared, so we're going to wait time. But if you're like me, you're prepared for it. No, I don't wait time. I don't ever wait time. That denies them time to perfect their case against you. And so it's good to go get ready. Now, one of the things I tell people, the first thing you want to do is go down to the courthouse and get the oath of office of, every, of all the judges. It might, it might cost you 10 or $15. But you'll find out that they're not judges because they didn't qualify to be a judge under Article 20, Section 2 in the California um, Constitution. Other states have the same situation. So if you're in your state, a different state, go to your Constitution, find out the oath of office that's mandated for them to have any power and authority, then go get their oath of office and you'll find out they didn't qualify. So they're not a judge. They're impersonating an officer of the court. And that's how I see judges and other, other people who work for government. Um, there was a guy back in the early 50s that caused all the states to come up with a second paragraph in their oath of office to find out if anybody was a communist. And uh, now we have terrorism on our streets. Don't we want to know that second paragraph? Uh, so, Bob? In California. Yes. Will you be available soon to answer questions? Y- yes. Okay. Uh, okay, I'll get you, I'll get you my, uh, <laughs> my wonderful document in two weeks, then. He said, let me just finish. I'll, I'll build up to that. Okay. In your... In your uh, in your discovery, where you get to know what they know and they have to answer you, um, if you send them an affidavit of facts, and I call it an affidavit of material facts, in other words, you, you can pull all kinds of facts out of the dictionary, that's unimportant, but these are materials in this case. So you send them an affidavit of facts, and they have to controvert that and say that's wrong, or those get set in concrete. That's a fact. You guys failed to respond to it. It's like the other one is uh, request their missions. If they don't admit to it or deny it, and when they deny it, they have to deny it with further admissible evidence so that the jury or the judge can weigh the evidence. In other words, it's not all one-sided. Everybody gets a chance to put in their two cents. And so what I've created here is um, a series of discovery documents that can be changed. For instance, with the wonderful computers we have now, we can take the first, let's say there's a fact that I want them, that I want to put on a record. I, you know, it's a fact that this happened. Well, then I can go through my computer. With my computer, I can, I can put in search for, um, it is a material fact that, and change that to, Admit that. Now that we want him to admit to that, same fact. Now we've got two documents that we can hold their feet to the fire on and, and use it against them. Now then we can change that same thing in the courtroom, change admit that to is it not a fact that? Now the guys on the stand, we can say is it not a fact that? And we go for the same fact that we did on two other things. So we 
two stacks on lanterns, which you're going to like in two weeks, because I've got 80 land pattern questions. 80. 80. There's no way they can get around these things. And it puts <laughs> it in the record so that they can't fight it. Okay, I'm ready for questions. Okay, everybody. Uh, if you have any questions for Bob, hit star 8 on your phone, and that will bring you up in the queue, and we'll call on you. So start eight on your phone, and as you know, Bob has a lot of knowledge, and he's a good guy to ask questions about. Okay, well, it looks like the West Coast has just lit up the board, Bob. We got two people from California, one from Oregon. So here we go, California. Go ahead. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, Hi, we can. can you hear me? Okay. So, Are you on a speakerphone? Yes. Can you take it off speaker, please? We're getting an echo. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes, go ahead. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Please go ahead. Let, 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 let me just suggest first that because of my really bad hearing, fortunately that's my only problem, but that's pretty bad, I need okay. you to speak slowly and distinctly, and then we can get by. Okay. Um, I, I can't do it on speaker. Okay, so here's the question. Um, I've been always very confused about land patents. I have ordered the land patents. I've gotten them. But I live in a condominium, and there's a bunch of other properties in the common area, you know, and I'm attached to another. How does that work when you live in a condominium? Okay, you want my answer? Yes. Yes. Okay, okay. I thought I, I think I understand. A condominium is, is uh, like a homeowners association, like my nephew. Yes. Okay, yes, here, is, here is their problem. When they took title to the land before they did their subdivision and built off everything, they are assigned to that original land patent. Now you bought some land, you, you bought an interest in that, and they failed, refused, or neglected to have you waive your interest in that land patent for the good of the whole. Because after all, they're putting in streets, curbs, gutters, doing trash, they're up there entitled to get, get their fee. And I'm not trying to get anybody to, to not pay their fair share of their fee. But you know, they also don't want your house painted with polka dots. But you might want to paint it uh, something that's just more like you, you and uh, it goes against something. So you, you have to claim the original land patent as it relates to your legal description. And then you own to the center of the earth, and you can do whatever you want to. But you, in all fairness, you should pay their fee to, you know, keep up the ground that, that everybody right. benefits from. Does that help uh, you? Yeah, uh, okay, so it, it is possible. That was what I was confused about. And then what about property that's out of state that is a rental property? I have tenants. It's a business. Uh, and, you know, I, I use it as a business. I'm hoping it will appreciate one of these days. 
can I claim that land patent and use that to my advantage? You can claim all <laughs> private land because all private land is protected forever with the United States land patent. So you pull the land patent from the Bureau of Land Management or the National Archives. And in California, there's one nearby, uh, Open Pest, California, there's National Archives. Now, they don't have land patents, but they have the court case that forced the Bureau of Land Management or the General Land Office, the GLO, to issue the, the land patent. So, so they're good to have to know about so you can get the you can get the uh, court case that goes with the issuance of the land patent. But to do a land management, every state that's not the 13 original colony states has a a bureau of land management. Plus, there's one in Washington D.C. And I've been you know I like to go where history happened. I've been to the National Archives and like I they spend millions of dollars every year to keep those very old, very valuable land patents from deteriorating anymore. So get the last happen and then look for the forever benefits so that you can claim that you're one of the assigned. The word in front of forever is assigned, the word assigned. You are the assigned forever for that that land. Then look for a reservation of rights. Now the reservation of rights are to the federal government only. There's never, never, never a reservation of rights to any legislative, executive, or judicial branch of any state. The states, the cities, the counties, they're all on the outside looking in, hoping you don't know what I'm telling you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. That's, You're welcome. That's the end of it? I don't think so. People are asking questions. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Hello. Okay. Um, mine is not a question to say about land patents, but you spoke about service of process. Um, I was recently foreclosed upon because the bank got an extraordinary relief of stay in someone else's bankruptcy and have accused me of granting part of my property to these people and um, who, are, who filed a bankruptcy the day before and then sending it to the um, trustee in order to stop a foreclosure sale. I had no knowledge of this at all. I do not know who did this. If it was done on myself or not, I don't know. I was in my own bankruptcy at the time it was done, uh, but they'd got a relief of stay, and I was working on other things to stop it. Uh, they stated that they served me uh, because they sent one regular piece of mail about the motion to the property address, which I class as my principal residence, but because I'm not there very often, and I have roommates uh, who I later found was keeping my mail, I had informed the bank in writing of a mailing address to which to serve me anything. And that was acknowledged by them in March of last year. 
in May, in, in February and in March and in April and in May, the bank and this attorney firm uh, who work on their um, bankruptcy stuff had sent documents to the mailing address on record. In this instance for the motion for the relief of stay in someone else's bankruptcy, they only sent one mail to the property address, not to the regular, the mailing address on record. I claimed, I, we tried to overturn the judgment because they'd used forged and fabricated documents. These grant deeds had my name on them. It had a notary seal and signature on them, and I was not in the state when they were signed, supposedly in front of this notary. These documents are not recorded. The judge would hear none of it, didn't care, said that uh, the bankruptcy of this person was closed. It had to be open for her to do anything, and I couldn't open it because I was not the debtor. And she claimed that I was properly served because I claimed the residence as my, as my principal residence, and it doesn't matter that I had designated a mailing address. And, and so that I had the opportunity to oppose this at the time of the hearing, which I had no knowledge of. What, are, what if anything, can I do now? Well, you've got a lot of things. Uh, let's start. First of all, we, we should talk about service of process. There's three different types of service of process. The most common is personal service. And they, on the personal uh, service, you need the very back page uh, of, the, of the original document. They have to hand you a summons and a complaint. They have to hand it to you and know that you are who you are. Now, if they don't, a lot of people void service of summons because uh, and complaint because they don't admit to being that. Uh, I had a friend one time that had a business of service of process, and he had a way to trick people into admitting who he was. He he got himself a mail bag and a mail truck. I'm serious, and he changed the word mail to M A I L to M A L E, and he walked up to the door with his mail pouch and serving the mail and he would say, are you Mrs. Smith? Mrs. Agnes Smith? Yes, I am. And then he would pull out the paper and say, you're served and go back in his truck and drive away. Um, another way he did it was, and say, in other words, you got to be careful. Don't ask the door unless you know who it is. Another time he got a flower truck and he'd bring up a bouquet of flowers. Are you Mrs. Smith? Yes. She identified herself. There's all kinds of ways to trick people into, into it. You don't have to help them serve you with process. Uh, I would say whenever if they, somebody caught me outdoors, uh, I'd say, who wants to know? And then uh, do you have a business card? And then, well, when I see him, I will tell him you're looking for him and take the business card and walk away. Now, you've not identified yourself. Then when you get into the front of the mirror, you hold the card up and say, you know, this guy's looking for you. <laughs> anyway, that's what some people have done in the past. That's called personal service of process. Now, if you try that many times, like six to eight times, 
they, you, know, you can do what's known as substitution of service, which is to a competent member of the household. It has to be somebody over the age of 18. It could be the butler or the maid or the mother-in-law or, or children, adult children, somebody that's in the household. They didn't, the, they didn't attempt any of that. All they did was send a regular mailed letter and, okay, and I'm, find I'm, a I'm, of service. I'm, I'm explaining this to everybody that's listening, too, so oh, they can okay. hear what's happening. Then if you can't do those two ways, then you have to go to the court and get a leave of court. You have to tell the court, I've been out there all these times, eight or ten times. I can't ever find anybody home or at the office. And by the way, if the time to serve you at the office, they can do a substitution of service with whoever is in charge of the office. So if you're trying to serve somebody in an office, you, you say, oh, I need to talk to the one that's in charge. Well, they'll bring the one that's in charge of it. They say, well, I'm serving the owner uh, with a summons uh, and a complaint that you have to answer. You have to explain it to them what this is all about. You have, to have a nice day, turn around, walk away. Now then, if you can't do personal service of process or substitution of service to a competent member of the household or to one in charge of the office, then you have to document all that and go back before the court and ask the court for leave to serve by publication. When he gives you that, then you go to a local uh, newspaper in the county and then you serve them with a publication in the legal and they have to publish it once a week for four weeks. It might be different in different places, but you can ask the publisher well, what's, the, what's the drill here. Now then, you take all that documentation back to the judge and say, here's my documentation. I, I served them my publication. Here's the affidavit from the newspaper that said they published it four weeks in a row. Now, and at the same time, by the way, you're sending all these notices to the, the address, the, the last known address. So they're still getting it whether you handed it to them. So they know that you, you look, to look in the newspaper. And when they find that they've been served, they had better respond because a default judgment can be taken against them. Now, in your case, you have a due process. They have a due process problem. So you create an affidavit of material facts that says what the fact is. That I was never served. I was in another state. I did this, I did that. Just go into enough details to prove that you didn't get served. Now then you take that and you can make a motion to reconsider with that, with that judge. Or you can go to what's known as the DAP. That's the Bankruptcy Appellate Panel and tell the Appellate Panel what this lower appellate, uh, bankruptcy judge did to you. And they can reverse it. So that's, that's the appeal area of, of the bankruptcy That's what case. I'll have to do, because I did have an affidavit of fact stating that I wasn't served. I had an affidavit from somebody who saw me in this other state on the date that this supposed grant deed was signed in front of the notary. Um, I had a declaration from a handwriting expert stating these were not my signatures. They were clear forgeries. And the judge said it doesn't matter. Um, this is not your bankruptcy. It's closed, and you can't open it. Well, here's, here's, I'm over, under, and two other problems. 
you make a motion to um, reopen the, um, the bankruptcy as a as an injured party. A motion to reconsider as a as a injured party. Now then, okay. we're going to deny, deny that. We are going to deny that. Don't say, oh, well, and go away. The denial is appealable. Now you take the same paperwork to the BAP. Okay. <laughs> so they will Thank definitely you. deny the motion to open it uh, as an no. injured party. I, 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 I'm saying that that's what most people experience. Uh, it's up to them. They, they, could, yeah. they, they, could, they could reopen it. They could be honest and, and give you relief. But uh, I tell people, just count on them not. They, they want to get this stuff over with and behind them, and that happens. Now, see, you can do what I just suggested. If you're a day late or a year late, you can open up any old dead and buried case with a motion to reconsider with newly discovered evidence. And if you're not a party, you buy a... By a by somebody who's injured. Mm-hmm. So you you've got to put that in there. You're injured by this uh, without due process of law, and you need somebody to reverse it. Now that's so, what I would do. I'm not giving you any legal advice. I'm telling you what yeah. I would do if I had your problem. That's interesting because she just kept insisting that um, I was not the debtor and not a debtor, so I could not reopen it. Um, but it's because fraud documents were used and it wasn't due process, the judgment is void um, of an issue. It's not voidable. It's void because fraud was used to gain the judgment. That would be your argument, for sure. Hey, a very hey, good argument. You, Bob? You've done, you've done your homework. Yes. Yeah, Bob, you think this is a case that you and John can offer uh, ongoing coaching with? Yeah, we can do that. Okay. So, ma'am, if you'd like, if you if you want um, assistance with this uh, from Bob and or John, uh, who works with Bob, uh, you can get assistance by going to youhavetheright.com. And on the right-hand side of the page, you look for the land patent banner ad. You click on that, and you can join the system and get their uh, ongoing uh, coaching, for that matter, if you're so inclined. Okay. Because um, it's... I'm trying to figure out how to overturn the sale because they used fraudulent documents to gain that in-rem, which makes any sale tainted by fraud is voidable, not void. And if it's tainted by fraud with an inadequacy of price at the sale, it's also extra grounds for voiding the judgment. But I've got a res judicata issue, which I mentioned to Bob a couple of years ago, that I, I can't seem to get past that, and they keep bringing that up. But I think the fraud voids that. It it doesn't matter about the res judicata when they bring fraud into the issue. Well, I would say that you don't have to handle this on your own. You can actually get some uh, competent people in your court, in your uh, on your side, to help you uh, bring this about. Uh, people have experience with uh, uh, finding the right documents to use for this situation. Okay, because I'm, I'm also trying to reopen a bankruptcy that uh, I right. tried to do to stop this. Yes, I got, I got that. I got that. Yeah. So, well, there's a difference. So, this is completely different. This is my own bankruptcy, and the bank 
is trying to stop me reopening a bankruptcy. Um, it would be interesting for others to hear that it's unbelievable that a bank is trying to stop a person having their right to have a bankruptcy administer their estate when they've been fully paid and they are literally okay. fighting. Well, that brings back several other issues. In your own bankruptcy against your lender, uh, have you filed an adversary proceeding? No, they just they just filed to stop me reopening it. We motioned to reopen the bankruptcy because the judge dismissed it because I hadn't filed the paperwork in time and, and I was an ineligible debtor by 20 days. We, I'm now an eligible debtor. We're trying to reopen it and file our own adversary proceeding and the bank's literally fighting like crazy to stop me from having this bankruptcy reopened. Yeah, okay, another thing... Uh you see, they, they're trying to get a free house. Now, the courts don't want anybody getting a free house. So uh, they're looking at uh, all of us homeowners as somebody that wants to get a free house. And we're entitled to a free house because we funded it with our signature on the on the loan papers. Now, they're not, they have no skin in the game, and yet now they want a free house. So we point out that here, here's, a, here's a really good way to do this. We, I'm telling you from experience. We say, we say the... Uh, the attorney for the opposition is trying to get a free house for his client, and he's trying to get this honorable court to become an accomplice, an accomplice to his crime. One got judge got up and ran off the bench because that's what they are, they're an accomplice to this crime, and, and it's a crime because they're trying to get a free house, and, and they've done it to literally thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. This is not a new yes. thing, and it's, it's so old now that now... Uh, it's becoming quite common to be able to fight and, and win. Well, that's an interesting concept to say that. Sorry. Yeah. All right. So is that... Thank you very much. For well, okay. Well, well, one other thing for this lady. Did you okay. ever get a securitization audit? Um, yes, I've had a couple of them, and nobody, nobody's really truly been able to find the trust that it's in. However... I have newly discovered evidence from the bank themselves just two weeks ago where Perfect. they're claiming that uh, they, they put in a declaration into this other person's bankruptcy that when it was just merged, it's one West bank and it was just merged with CIT group or CIT bank. The declaration states that the uh, parent company of one West bank is I am Hold Co. Well, if the parent company is IMB Hold Co, shouldn't they have always been mentioned in any litigation? Shouldn't they be the one that's, if they truly hold it, shouldn't they be the ones that are trying to foreclose in IMB Hold Co's name, not One West? Well, your, your word if is a very big word. Uh, yes, and they are the holder, and they probably are not. Usually the one that's going to foreclose on you is the mortgage loan servicer. They're the yes. ones that's coming coming after your house, and they have no proper papers, and they've had all these robo-signers, they have undocumented yes. people witnessing, notaries that are <laughs> false. I mean, there's some, uh, they've proven that this one notary stamp 
has been uh, used and there's been eight or ten other signatures, but, you know, people that analyze yeah. signatures, so that's not the same signature. And they've notarized them sometimes two years at a different date late and from another state, not just somebody at the end of the hall. So they didn't, it's impossible that they could have notarized it. So you need a securitization audit. Securitization, that's the bifurcation of the, or separation of the promissory note from either the trustee or the mortgage. So when you can prove that it was separated, there is no more loan. You don't owe anything. They discharged it. You didn't pay it. Nobody paid it. We yeah. caught the P word. It wasn't paid. No, sir, it wasn't paid. It was discharged by their, by operation of law. Yes, and you I've just, read, I've, and you I just, understand that part. And you just discovered that. That's newly discovered evidence that you can open up anything that's dead and buried with newly, newly discovered evidence. Do you know what a NIPS number is? Have, has anybody on this call ever heard of the NIPS number? N-I-P-S. I haven't. I'll be honest. Well, I'll tell you what I've just discovered, and, and this may be something for you to do. It's called a new. It's a new issue pool statistics. NIPS for short. Um, I'll send you some information because I I'd. One of their, you know, people on the calls at one time with the bank had said that my NIPS number was XXXX, and I did not know what a NIPS number was until last week when I started really researching it. Um, and it's relating to this new issue pool statistics, and it's related to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which my loan supposedly isn't in, but it's an interesting thing that you might want to do your own research on to help other people, too. Well, see, see that would be a statement of material fact. You that you would, but in discovery, you would say um, okay. that this loan has a NIPS number, and then let them controvert it. If they don't controvert it, then it does have a NIPS number. Say it's a setup. I, I like to set them up for a fall. Yes, I'm, I'm, I need to set them up, really, because I'm in discovery in a rescission case with them, and I'm about to start the discovery process because I have a trial date, so okay, I, I need so, to set so them up. So I'm, I'm going gonna, to I'm do gonna, that uh, contact I'm going to interrupt here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to recommend that you sign up for uh, John and Bob's coaching right away, and mm-hmm. that you do that probably either tonight or tomorrow, and so that you can get them on your side immediately before you go any further. Mm-hmm. Because you want people who have, uh, you know, Bob's understanding to help guide you through this. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Thank you very that. much for your information um, on this call and others as well. We, we all, all of us appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Okay. Uh, we did have somebody that was waiting that is gone now. So if anybody has any questions, hit star eight on your phone so you'll come up in our queue. Okay, California, go ahead. Okay, Hi, um, it's Tina Ang. Can I just add something to that lady's uh, bankruptcy? Hello? Uh, I just wanted to say that she could probably ask them for their proof of claim, which the form can be downloaded on the bankruptcy website. And also, if there's an outstanding case, she can subpoena them left and right now. 
ever signed every single document that was recorded against her property. It's time to... Excellent suggestion, and I appreciate your input. Okay, that's all I have. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, anybody else that's got any questions, hit star 8 on your phone. So if we don't have any other questions, then we'll probably go ahead and call it an evening. Um, uh, Just... Oh, there we go. Someone else from California. Go ahead, California. Hi, Bob. Hi, John. Can you hear me? Yep. Hi. So it's Daniel down in in, uh, Carlsbad. So in our preparation to do a motion to reconsider, I have a question. Someone else, actually June Reno, a while back had said that the banks need to... um, submit paperwork to the county recorder's office that shows a satisfaction of uh, lien. And so when the banks allegedly, during the unlawful detainer process and the foreclosure process, when they move forward and say, well, we owned the bank all along and it was part of our trust, that when they allegedly take the property through the fraudulent foreclosure sale or the auction, that they must produce paperwork showing the satisfaction of the lien. And I never saw one at the county recorder's office. And so as we move forward getting ready to do a motion to reconsider, I'm wondering what you can add to that if, in fact, since, since the county recorder doesn't have this, no, um, this satisfaction of the lien, how that would benefit us, how we could move forward. And I'll you see, that, that would be a discovery issue that you would ask. You would put in a statement of material facts and also a, a request for admissions. And you, you ask them to admit to. And so you can open up all kinds of stuff against them with those two documents. Okay. And, and, and also uh, the third one would be request for documents, papers, and things. So that's a whole document in itself. And so you, you can hit them three ways right there. Okay. Very good. I will look forward to following that up with you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, someone else from California. I just want to add. Hello. I just want to add to that again. That code is California Civil Code two nine four one, regarding satisfaction of mortgage. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, Washington State, or some people say Washington. Here you go. Washington is Washington's Washington is the way the Southerners say it. They add that mm-hmm. R in there. In Washington, O R Washington, like Worcestershire sauce. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. So, what's your question? Hi, this, this is Pat, Bob, and um, I'm going to call you soon and get this straightened out. But maybe you could add to what is a non-binding arbitration. Yes, uh, we talked this morning. Uh, I like arbitration. It gives you another round to slug it out with them, and you could win in arbitration. Now, my twin brother, uh, he won his case in arbitration. Uh, you, you remember the Aaron Brockovich movie? Well, the arbitrator was the same judge in the Aaron Brockovich movie, you know, the, I mean, the real guy. And uh, my brother was very successful 
and he got everything he wanted, everything he wanted through arbitration. So arbitration and mediation can be good. Now, you, if you want to, if you do that, you want to do unbinding or non-binding, so that if you don't like what they do, then you can go back into the court, courtroom and, and get your judge or jury. But uh, I, I like, I suggest people do arbitration or mediation whenever they can, because you, you could win right there. So that's bes- that's beside the uh, um, the uh, foreclosure or the um, dang what is it that I was that you sent me the uh, quiet title action at law. Yes, the quiet title action is where you sue them for a quiet title. You want your title quieted against their title. They claim title. You claim title. So you need a judge and a jury to say, no, we're quieting their title. They don't. They have no more title. You have the title. It's the quiet the title into your name. But that's a that's a lawsuit that we do for people. We help them do that, and uh, it's 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 been very successful. We've had. I've got to tell you. A success because remember we talked about there's nothing as good as success. A man this turned out to be a bankruptcy and then went, went with a, an adversary proceeding and then it went to a quiet title action recently. But about three years ago, a woman filed had a, an attorney file a bankruptcy and he slugged it out for a while and he got him, you know, I got some money's worth. He got him several months living in a big expensive house for free. And then he told his clients, this guy's wife, I just have to tell you that the next time we go into court, you're going to lose your house. I've done, I've done everything I can in the system. So her husband said, well, I heard about this guy in Southern California that seems to have a lot of success. <laughs> So he hired me, and I did an adversary proceeding. And she took it and filed it in the court. Even though she had an attorney, she filed it. The court accepted it. She took a copy to the attorney. He looked at it, and he just fell apart. Oh, this is terrible. I'm not going to embarrass myself with this. You're on your own. I'm not even going to court with you. So it freaked her out because she needed somebody to stand beside her, like most people think they have to have. So she came home. And she told her husband what happened. She, he says, honey, I've never let you down before. I read this document. I don't see how they can answer it. This is what's pretty righteous for me. Besides that, he said, you're going to lose your house anyway. You can lose it with him or without him. So let's see what happens. So she went into court the next hearing that was scheduled without her attorney, and they scheduled, they scheduled her for last. Now, that's a good sign because they don't want anybody can somebody have a success. So she was last. She was nine people lose their house with an attorney sitting beside them. Nine. She was wow. the tenth one. She got they got up. They called the case. She got up, went up by herself, not knowing what's going to happen. The attorney to the lender got, or the law service got up. He said, "Your Honor, I was just served this about ten days ago, and um, I need ninety days to respond to it." Three months. Well, they got another three months for the price they paid me. 
And then I never heard from him again. And I thought, well, they're going to win with that episode proceeding. But, you know, the courts are all leaning towards, towards lending institutions. Anyway, I didn't hear for about two years. And I always wondered, what ever happened to that? Because they never contacted me. Well, then the man called me up and he said, well, the bank's coming after us again, and we need to, uh, we need to fight him again. And I remembered him. I said, well, what happened two years ago? He said, well, in 90 days, the, the, the bankruptcy was thrown out. But the, the bank never did anything. They saw all the arguments that we had in that adversary proceeding that they had to overcome. And they didn't do anything for two years. So then they started messing with him. So we started to mess with them back. Before they messed with him two months. So we did, a, did an adversary proceeding for him. And that was four months ago. And this, now we're going into arbitration. This is a good thing. He had to ask me his arbitration deal. I said, yes, that's a good thing. Because an arbitrator could say that they don't have a prayer. Because by now, you see, two years later, we know a whole lot more than we knew two years ago. And they've got a major problem here. And so that's a success that I'm proud of. Uh, and I believe that this quiet title action is going to end up with a free house. Now, because, because if either they get a free house or the pretender lender gets a free house, and we're showing them how that shouldn't happen. Now, there have been bankruptcy attorneys, there's one in New York that uh, heard all these arguments, and he uh, called the case forward, and he asked the uh, attorney to the bank, you have one question. I'll just need a yes or no answer. Is your, is your client a holder in due course? Not just a holder, but a holder in due course. That means it's properly signed all the way back of both the promissory note and the mortgage. And the attorney says, no, sir, they're not. The judge pointed that and said, you lose, this man gets a free house. The judge used the free house word. <laughs> wow. So so do you need some assistance with your situation? Uh, yeah, I'm going to call Bob tomorrow. Yeah, he's been helping oh. me right along. I just thought others oh, would like okay. to know what that nine non-binding arbitration Okay. Was going to do so. It was, oh, it, was yeah. through, it was through this lady that uh, she has a lot of friends in Wisconsin, and she she got me set up to do a seminar in Wisconsin. I drove all the way to Wisconsin, got to see the old homestead where my great grandfather came in 1882. Oh, yeah. Visited visited yes, my family yes. and had a really nice seminar in Tomahawk, Wisconsin. And, yeah, uh, that was cool. The people, when I left, they said, we were about ready to give up, but you've given us so much ammo, we're going for it. Yep. Well, well let, your, let your friends know that they can uh, access Bob through, uh, or coaching through Bob and John through youhavetheright.com as well. Yeah. Yes, I've been spreading that around to them. We've been using Bob for quite a while, and I, but th- this new uh, website is a- absolutely excellent. My congratulations to you. Thank you very much. All right, uh, we have one final question for the evening. We go back to Southern California, and this will be our last question. Hi. 
Uh, hi, this question is about when a, when a judge signs an order. If a judge issues an order in court, whether it's a minute order in his chambers or the final order, if the judge does not physically sign it, like his, his name is not by the no signature, but there is a court filing stamp, is that a legal order? Well, you're asking for my opinion, and my opinion is no. It's got to be his left signature, and you can find out what his left signature looks like by going and getting his oath of office. You've mm-hmm. got to do your, do your homework, set him up. He probably isn't a judge because he doesn't have his oath of office, so that would be an appealable issue. You could See, here's another thing that should be mentioned right here. A lot of stuff is is old, and, and they say, well, that's too old. This case is dead and buried. The remittiture has been issued. It's over. We're not going to rehash any of this stuff. So the way around over and through that is you make a motion to recall the remittiture for newly discovered evidence. You've got to add newly discovered evidence. They have to re- they, he doesn't have to reopen it. He should. But if he denies it, and he probably will, that is a, in itself is an appealable issue. And you've got 40 days to take it into the appellate court, or maybe 30, depending on different things. If the, if the appellate court doesn't sign their orders, then you make a motion to, re, you make a motion to reconsider for them and, and show them that this wasn't signed. You want to let it in signature because you see. You're supposed to, when you file a notice of appeal, it's supposed to be with a wet ink signature of a final order, not a rubber stamp, because anybody can throw a rubber stamp around. It's got to be a wet ink signature of that judge, so you can go into the appellate court above that court and say, this was not a wet ink signature. We want you to remand this back for a, a, a real... See, sometimes the courts get really evil. For instance, I put a... On my hotel, I put a common law lien on it. And when the judge removed the lien, I went into the appellate court and said, he has no authority in common law, he's in civil law. And they bought into that. And they put the lien back in place. But then they did another one. They, you know, they're in cahoots, they talk, and they, they, uh, they got rid of the lien again. Well, I went over and I, I did my notice of appeal. Well, they said it wasn't ever... Finalized. I, I couldn't. I couldn't appeal something that wasn't finished with a wedding signature. Well, I didn't know they were playing games with me. They did that like two or three months later, and I didn't appeal it timely because I didn't know about it. I was going mm-hmm. back about thirty years ago. Now I know to to stay on top of stuff and keep checking my record. Because yeah, this seems to be under 28 U.S.C. 1691 about a court order, and a writ is a court order. Anything like that is a court is a is a court order, correct? Yeah. Now, see, um, let's say that you're they don't ever issue the final thing, but you have an appealable issue. There's a way around the one final judgment rule. They, a lot of times people used to do piecemeal appeals. Every time the judge didn't look at them crosswise or somebody or did something wrong, oh, you've got my notice of appeal on that issue. 
Well, it got abused. And and so they came up with, they, there's always a way they, they counter everything anybody does. It's back and forth. And so we have to always learn new ways around problems. So they came up with what they call the one final judgment rule. You cannot appeal until the final judgment, wet ink signature, you tap that with your notice of appeal, you ask the court for a briefing schedule. What is my appellant's opening brief to? And now you're up, going up on appeal. Well, they, uh, they don't always do that. And, you can, and sometimes you don't want to wait for the one final judgment rule. You could be sitting in jail. And how, how are you going to do your paperwork? And so we have some issues that need to, be, to go up on appeal right, right, right now before we go any further. And so that's called an interlocutory appeal. So we've got that document. And uh, so we, you know, sometimes originally the clerk is there, what's this all about? We've got to wait for the final. I said, no, no, no. This is an interlocutory appeal. And on page two is Black's Law Dictionary. That's your dictionary. Black's Law Dictionary on interlocutory appeal. It's okay. They say it's okay. It's a procedure that is okay. So then they take it. So you can you can before you get all the documents that that you really need for a regular appeal, you can do an interlocutory appeal without any of those signatures. Okay. That's good because there's no signatures at all on these. None. Well, Not even a one time, signature. One, one time I made four motions for a judge to give me a signed document. It took him more than a year. And the appellate court already threw my case out because I never brought him a signed document. So a whole year went by and this guy just not giving me. So I learned from that. I could have gone up on a, 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 to the higher court with a motion to compel a, 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 a motion for a... Uh, yeah, a motion to compel, to have them compel him to sign something so that I could appeal it. Now, there's, there's also writs, writs of mandate. You can do it at the higher level, writ of mandate or a writ of uh, prohibition. You can pro, get them to prohibit. And you can combine them. You know, case law says a writ of uh, mandate shall issue or a writ of prohibition may issue, but you might want to to prohibit them from something. Uh, I did this on an arrest warrant for myself that was really unjust that I eventually beat them on. They had no business doing it. And so I, I combined the two. I did a, a, did a writ of prohibitory mandate. <laughs> two documents in one. And I got my way. That's good to know. That's what I was thinking of doing. Right. So, so, does that, so does that address your question then? Yeah, I just thought it would be right. good for a lot of people to hear too. Um, it is. That's, mm-hmm. All right. 28, 29, 29 something one. I'll, I'll email you the code so that you guys have it. Thank you. Thank so you very much. When we have our next conference call in two weeks, we'll get into this document, the 80... The 80 uh, 
statements of material facts that they had better respond to. And it tells, in those 80 questions, it really looked at lamp pounds. It just analyzes lamp, lamp pounds from every side. <laughs> and they will see that they don't have a prayer. They're on the outside completely. I'm doing this for somebody that's been messing with this guy for about 15 years. And, you know, it would cost him thousands of dollars, and they have no jurisdiction at all. So we're going we're gonna to recall. We're going to get trouble damages. We can go back 10 years, because I'm just getting in on it for last. And then the recall, we can go back 10 years and get trouble damages. And we're suing everybody in the individual capacity, the non-official, because they don't have an oath of office. They don't have an office. Everything was done under the color of law. And this guy just found out about it because he found me. And now we're taking advantage of all their mistakes. They make more mistakes than you can believe. <laughs> and we're, we're not going to make Now, there's one final thing that I should tell people they should be doing. Besides going to the courthouse, and getting the oath of office, you should start. You know more about your problem than anybody else. And so how do you, how do you convey that? We call it a 4 affidavit. The who, what, where, and when. So you make a paragraph that has the 4 W's. In other words, it will say, on this date, uh, at this address, this guy came and did this thing. There's your four W's. And then, if you don't have a computer, you can do it on three by five cards or five by seven cards because you're going to want to shuffle these. Maybe after you think about it, you remember another incident that happened way right back between this date and that date. So you can plug it in with a computer. You just put it in the right place. And then, when you finish it, the last thing you do is you go back and you just so that you. The one that's reading this can get a better picture in their head. You can see on this, you start out with just the plane on this date at this location, this guy did this thing. Then the next paragraph says, and three days later, and the next one might say, and two hours later, and the next one might be three weeks later, on, you know, and you go through the, the actual date and all that stuff, so that people can, who are reading this, which could be a judge or a mediator, uh, or a jury can get a picture in their mind all the evils that they did in in real time, so to speak. So that's one thing that people can start doing right now. It doesn't hurt to get ahead of the game by stating your affidavit of four W's to get this in a picture form that can be presented to somebody because they need to know what you know. And until you know, they know what you know, it's all hearsay. You've got to put it in writing. There's an old maxim of law that says if it didn't happen in writing, it didn't happen. So you put it in writing. Then we can place right. that affidavit of four W's, and we can put that in, a, in an affidavit of material facts. We can convert that into a, into a request for admissions. We can convert that into a myth. Excuse me. Uh, is it not a fact that when they now, get Bob, is this is this a relation to land patents or just any court case? Any court case. 
Okay. And so uh, it's we, we've been on for quite a while, so I'm going to go ahead and close it off. But before I do, I'm going to say that um, with in light of what you said, I would recommend that people uh, at least obtain your coaching if they have a situation that needs something like that. And they can do that at youhavetheright.com. They can look under uh, Land Patent Coaching on the right-hand side of the page and join up and get some competent help to help guide you through. And, and I'll have to say that you guys have made it very easy made it very easy for people. And uh, for those that are my subscribers at youhavetheright.com, uh, sometime this week uh, this call will be um, edited and put up, and we'll have Bob as a new category and a new coach or mentor to follow within the member section. And I'm, I'm very glad to say that. So, Bob, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, as always, you're full of knowledge. And uh, we thank will. You for providing, thank you for providing this forum. Look, you bet. I appreciate it, and the listeners appreciate it too. You bet. And we'll see you in two weeks, Bob. Yes. Okay. Good night, everybody. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.